Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I just got back well this past week from San Francisco, and it was a lot of fun. It was really nice to go back there. For the last about 10 years or so, I would go down to San Francisco quite a bit. I live in Seattle, so it's only a two-hour flight. But there are obviously a lot of tech companies and therefore a lot of fraud fighters within the Bay Area. And many of them have become good friends. I've known several of them for close to a decade at this point. And over my career, I've gotten to do some really cool things in the Bay Area. I got to speak at the Google campus. I got to speak at Uber and Square and a lot of other big companies. Uh, I once ran into Jack Dorsey, like physically once in Square. And then that afternoon, I saw him at Twitter when I was meeting a friend that worked there. This was like nine years ago, but I I joked with my husband, I probably should have bought a lottery ticket that day because he was especially very popular back then and didn't look so much like a mountain man than he does now. But anyway, the last time I was in San Francisco, I was actually the first week of February in 2020. I hosted a merchant only uh, regional collaboration event. It wasn't just merchant only. We had a couple of sponsors, but primarily it was merchants. It was about 140 people. And my friend worked at Patreon at the time. So they hosted that and it was really just such a fun event. And Believe it or not, that was actually what my plan was for the rest of 2020 was I was starting to scope out, let's do this in other regional areas. Uh, It's so important for fraud fighters to get to know each other, to meet in person, to collaborate and learn from each other, to know who's in their area. I once introduced two guys in the industry who ended up being neighbors. So I was talking to one of them. They both worked at big name companies in the Bay Area, but we were actually at a conference in Las Vegas and I was talking to one of them and the other one walked up to talk to me and I said, oh, do you know each other? And they said, no, but then he kind of looked familiar. So they started to say, where do you live? Bay Area. Okay. Then they narrowed it down to the city, narrowed it down to the area and the neighborhood, narrowed it down to the apartment complex. And it turned out that while they were both in the same industry and they'd bump into each other sometimes like taking out the garbage or getting on the train, they didn't actually know each other. So that is a very good example of why I think regional events are great and not everybody can go to big conferences. So anyway, that was my plan for 2020. We obviously know how that worked out. I am in conversations with a couple of potential sponsors for at least hopefully in person one or two cities on the West Coast. I don't know just bandwidth wise if I'll be able to do more than that. But anyway, I'm getting off track. But what else is new? So anyway, I went to San Francisco this past week after like a little over two years, two and a half years to attend the Marketplace Risk Management Conference. That is a mouthful, by the way, Marketplace Risk Management Conference. It was a great experience. I got to catch up with some really great people and learn a little bit. I am going to share a little bit more updates from Marketplace Risk in just a couple of minutes. The main topic of today's episode is going to be, it's not going to be super uplifting and fun. However, I think it's very necessary. Uh, There's been 
more than a handful of LinkedIn posts, LinkedIn messages I've received, conversations I've had in person or on the phone over the last couple of weeks of people getting really concerned about the looming recession. We're starting to see signs of that. Netflix did a layoff, which they haven't done layoffs in a really long time. If ever, I don't even know. They probably have in the past, but especially when they switch business models from DVD to streaming, but it's been a long time. We're seeing valuations change and shift. There's just a lot of uncertainty. So I'm going to talk about the potential impacts to the anti-fraud industry in part by looking back at our experiences and the things that the way fraud changed in 2008 to 2012, the last recession we had here in the U.S. And I know that that recession also trickled out into Europe and other areas too. And then I'm going to also share just some ways to prepare and, and to try to make the best of it. We are in a fairly recession-proof industry. But that doesn't, that's not true for everyone. And I just know how stressful uncertainty is. I've had a lot of it in my life, especially the last month or two. So I know how stressful that is. So I feel like maybe if I talk about it and share what you should be on the lookout for and what to be concerned about, and then also some ways that you can productive and prepare rather than just waiting for something to happen, good or bad, maybe that will help you not be as nervous. That's my goal. But first, a little palate cleanser, because like I said, today is going to be a little bit tough, but that's okay. We'll get through it. And I actually think there's a lot of value in talking about the things that are hard because that's how we learn and that's how we prepare. So we're not blindsided. But um, a little funny fraud story. Okay, so fraud isn't funny, but sometimes you need to learn to laugh and we need some comic relief. And when I saw this headline, I thought it was just funny. I don't know if any of you, I was just going to ask, did any of you guys ever watch the Power Rangers in the 90s? I'm not exactly sure how I expected you to answer me. I was a little too old for the Power Rangers, but I certainly remember them. They fought crime or bad guys. I, I don't really know. I think out in space, like, see, I'm totally... I really didn't watch it. I just remember Go Go Power Rangers. But they all had different colored suits in there. The main Power Ranger, the one that was always in the middle of all of their pictures, was the Red Power Ranger. And he was played by Austin St. John. Last week, Austin St. John was arrested for alleged COVID fraud. So he was arrested by the FBI. They raided his house. He and 18 other defendants, actually, I think it's him and 17 other defendants, sorry about that, are charged with attempting to defraud the Small Business Administration's Paycheck Protection Program here in the U.S. So I've talked about this before. A very big fraud issue. While it wasn't in e-commerce, it definitely has impacted e-commerce. I talked about that when I talked about why I believe that online fraud is in a state of emergency a few weeks ago. So I won't get into all of that now. But now that a lot of us were trying to sound the alarm at the time, but now that the Small Businesses Administration and other agencies have realized that there's a lot of fraud, the FBI and I believe the Secret Service as well have been doing investigations on some of the bigger fraud issues so that there can be at least some accountability and some prison sentences attached to this. I don't think they'll ever really get the money back, but it does send a message uh, not to do it, which is a good thing and something that those of us in fraud would probably like to see more of. But in this case, they stole from the government, so it's a little more close to home for the FBI. But looks, it's alleged that in total, these 18 defendants, which includes the Red Power Ranger, uh, received more than $3.5 million across 16 separate small business loans. What gets me is like, I did apply for a PPP like in the second round because it was needed. The pandemic definitely did impact my business, but I am grateful for pivoting and just grateful for this podcast and everything that's come out of it and other really awesome clients that I get to work with. But I did not get loans that big. Mine was much, much smaller. 
Then again, I guess when you're using made up numbers, you can get a lot more. So anyway, he was a child star in the early 90s. I guess he did some voicing over and stuff like that for a couple comeback things like a Power Rangers video game and a new a TV series in 2020 that I don't think lasted long. But for whatever that's worth, his Power Ranger money must have run out because he stole from the Paycheck Protection Program. When I told my husband this, he said instead of go Power Rangers, it's go Power Fraudsters. So there you go. There's your cheesy moment. With that, let's hear a word from our sponsor, and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about my experience and learnings at the Marketplace Risk Summit, as well as what we can do to prepare for this recession that looks like it's headed our way. So I want to give a bit of a recap of my experience at the Marketplace Management Conference. Like I said, it's such a mouthful. I always just want to say Marketplace Risk. But anyway, I know that a lot of you can't attend conferences or much or ever or if you have to decide between one or two. So that's why I try to give a little bit of a recap. I provided a full episode recap of the MRC because that is the quote unquote Super Bowl of online fraud prevention conferences. It's been referred to that as that for many times. And I know this week is the MRC conference in Berlin for Europe. And I am so jealous. I adore going to the MRC Europe conferences. I was invited and asked to speak, but I just couldn't swing it finance wise, as well as my family and I are, are getting prepared to move in the next week or two. So there would be no way my husband would ever let me go to Germany this week. Actually, fun fact, the last time when we moved to this house four years ago, my poor husband had to unload the whole house or pack up our old house and move into the new house without me because I was on site for a client meeting for a week with a really large company. And I don't think he's ever going to let me forget it. So anyway, MRC Europe, and I'm sad for that. But I hope those of you that are, are really having a great time connecting with your peers and learning. I always enjoyed going to the European events when I was on staff there. Minus the time I broke my leg, but that is a whole other story. So anyway, I've had my eye on the Marketplace Risk Management Conference for a while, but it always happened the same week as another conference that I was involved in, the CMP Summit. And so because of that, I just never got to check it out. I've subscribed to the emails. I've noticed that they put on some great webinars throughout the year. They're very focused on marketplaces with trust and safety, compliance, legal. So it's not just fraud related, which I also enjoy. I enjoy learning about things that are tangential, but not directly related. It allows us to learn a little bit more. Happy that I got to experience it this year. PJ Rohal from Sion and About Fraud. He's one of the co-founders of the website About Fraud. He was very kind to invite me to join the panel with Mike Wilkins at Turo and also Candace Sogren at uh, Sokir. And we had like several meetings before the event, and it was really nice to connect with them and, and talk this out. Our conversation was titled Driving Trust in Shared Marketplaces. And we just talked about a lot of the things I've talked about recently in, in other episodes, such as the episode with case studies around how marketplaces are measuring the impact of trust, losing it as well as gaining it, and how it really has real dollars attached to it. So we were able to have a great conversation. The downside of that is that somebody pulled the fire alarm or I don't know what happened. At one point, somebody said that there was a bomb threat, but there wasn't. I don't know. Anyway, I was actually late to the conference the first day, so I missed the fire alarm, but it moved the program an entire like session forward. So everything was behind a half an hour. And unfortunately, our panel was set at the end of the day, and it just happened to be the exact same time that the open bar was opening since our session was late. We had a good crowd. 
not a big crowd, but we had like probably about 60 people and it was great. It was really fun to talk with them. The sessions are really short, so it's hard to put a lot of information in there, but we did the best we could. And I really enjoyed uh, speaking with all three of them. I really, I think we all have mutual respect for each other. And so that makes it a lot of fun when you're on a panel. Within marketplaces, there's just so much more to consider than just payment fraud. I think that for those in traditional e-commerce, it can be an interesting mental exercise to think about all of the challenges that marketplaces have. And that's really where the term trust and safety came out of because fraud is a part of trust and safety, but it's not everything. Trust and safety is really thinking about how can we gain our or keep gain or keep our customers trust while also keeping them safe. And sometimes it's real world safety. When there's a marketplace with real world interactions with their users, whether it's a driver and a passenger or a guest and a host or any of those things, when there's an in-person interaction, there can always be a risk for violence or property damage or stealing things. It's just all There's all kinds of risks that they have to think out and then also be ready to react at any time because a lot of people within marketplaces have learned as they've gone. And it's really fascinating how many things they have to think about, but it's also a lot of fun. And some marketplaces have huge trust and safety teams. So everybody's focused on their one area of trust and safety. Other companies, especially startups, might have just one or two people that are handling everything. Some of the stories I've heard or examples I've heard from marketplaces over the years, one is around like the companies that allow you to stay in a stranger's home or host a stranger in your own home, as well as dog sitting, house sitting, all of those things where somebody that you don't know has access to your house. There's definitely been cases of giant parties using that property or that address as a drop address to receive stolen goods. There's a lot of just risks like that, as well as in transportation, whether you are renting a vehicle or even a boat or you're hiring a driver, those vehicles have been used and associated with crime, whether it's, you know, drug smuggling or committing a crime and using it as a getaway vehicle because it's one step removed from the person who's using it. So if they feel some anonymity there. So those are all things that people in trust and safety have to Figure out how to prevent as much as possible and account for them in their terms of service, as well as have action plans in place for when they do happen. Uh, so I really enjoyed learning from everyone. One interesting use case that I heard that I hadn't heard before when it comes to marketplaces is delivery drivers who are delivering alcohol, whether it's full bottles from a drugstore or a liquor store, depending on your state, and then bringing it to your doorstep, there's uh, a requirement to show ID when you pick it up or when it's delivered to you. And in some cases, there have been issues of delivery drivers scanning the back of your driver's license and then using that ID as a stolen identity and stealing from that person, whether it's using their current credit cards or opening up new lines of credit in their name. So I know you guys always enjoy new use cases and information. So I thought I would share that there. And those are just all things that you have to think about when you work for a marketplace and whether you work for a marketplace now or a standalone retailer or you're in another area, who knows, you may want to work for a marketplace or your company may tell you, hey, we're doing a marketplace, whether it's for digital goods or uh, physical goods. There's been several big box retailers, Amazon obviously being the first one, but there are several to follow that have their own marketplaces now. And those fraud teams have had to shift to thinking about a lot of other things, especially because most marketplaces don't fulfill their own items. If it's physical goods, oftentimes there's a seller and they're the ones shipping it to the consumer and you need to do everything you can 
to make sure that that buyer gets the item they're expecting in the time that they're expecting it because they paid for it and that the seller is doing all the right things to protect your company from chargebacks as well as reputational issues. If it's service related, if it's in-person related, then that marketplace is providing the platform for buyers and sellers to meet, whether it's a driver and a passenger or a guest or a host or whatever that marketplace is. There definitely were some interesting new marketplaces coming up. There was one, I guess it's been around and it started in Seattle a few years ago and I was sad I hadn't heard of it before and now here I am moving, but it's called Loopy and it allows people like people to wash clothes for other people. So basically wash, dry, fold, and then give it to someone else. So basically if I'm too busy to do laundry, which has happened a few times, then I would go to this app and someone else who has a washer and dryer and who has the time to wash, dry, and fold my laundry would do it. And I would pay Loopy and then Loopy would pay the, the washer or the person doing the laundry and they deliver it to your house and everything else. That was really fascinating to me. And there's several other ones, but that was one that the CEO spoke twice on the sessions. So I assumed I could talk about them publicly and call them out. And it was interesting I and mean, they're still new, but they're definitely learning that not all consumers or buyers are truth tellers and have good intentions, but they're doing some great things to prevent it from the onset. And that's really the best thing you can do. One of the highlights for sure by being down in San Francisco, as well as the Marketplace Risk Conference, is that I got to see a lot of familiar faces both at the conference and afterwards and had some great conversations. I will say that the event space was a little tricky to meet new people and there weren't a lot of breaks. So you're running from one session to the next. But it was still a good event. I'm glad I went. And the last night of the conference, I met up with a very good friend that works for a pretty dang big company, but uh, we've been friends long before she worked there for dinner. And that was so fun just to connect in person. That's actually the second time we've been able to connect during COVID. Her and her husband were on a road trip last year, I think, and they stopped in Seattle. But so that was just very, you know, soul fulfilling. And it's always fun when you can mix personal stuff with fraud stuff and talk high level and all that stuff. And then the next day I had lunch with another merchant and that was good. I didn't know her as well, but I wanted to get to know her. So I was really grateful that she made some time. I also met up with the sales team, the very small but mighty sales team of Spectrust. They're a team of three. Spectrust was the sponsor of the podcast the last six weeks. And if you didn't listen to the episode where I interviewed their CEO, Nate Carl, I highly recommend it. I'm very intrigued by their new approach to fraud fighting and especially solving the need of not needing any engineering resources to use their system as well as other fraud providers too. I think it's going to, in the future, democratize anti-fraud solutions and really help merchants uh, select the right risk stack for them without having engineering resources be the issue. And they literally don't even have an API. So anyway, obviously I'm trying to plug them, but I really enjoyed talking with them. It's really fun for me to talk to new fraud fighters who are Learning about our industry, obviously, in their own path, it's kind of choose your own adventure these days. Though between my podcast and the Practical Fraud Prevention book by Shoshana and Galit, I think we're making some progress. There's also some great organizations out there that try to provide information. But it's always just interesting to me to learn, you know, what their observations are of the people, of the industry, of the problems. They often come to the industry with other outside experience and might see things differently. And it's just something I always enjoy. Also, very uniquely, one of their members of their sales team, actually his background is 
very unique. I think he's the only one so far in fraud that can claim this. He was actually in the NFL and played for a few different teams. And now he is in sales at Spectrust. And Brandon Smith is such a nice guy. I really enjoyed getting to know him as well as Matt and Jess. And we just had a late breakfast outside on a, a patio and just talked fraud. And that's my favorite. If I could do that all day long, just travel and talk about fraud with people in the industry, I would do it. If I could make a living, <laughs> that is what I would do. I guess I'd probably have to come home and see my family sometimes, but it's really... Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe. Without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models and their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. And that's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. And that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. my favorite with that now we're gonna turn to uh, not as great of a topic but an important one and i know i probably shouldn't be like being all gloom and doom and dread it should just be like hey this is what's happening in the world we can either try to ignore it we can panic about it or we can try to prepare and that's my approach this looming recession there's more and more headlines there's more and more experts speaking out and i think this one is going to impact tech more than real estate at least at first and part of that's because tech has been booming for so long and what goes up sometimes has to come down but let's get into it so before i dive into kind of what i think the impacts of this may be on merchants and vendors and fraud prevention i'm gonna set the stage so this week, the Wall Street Journal published an article titled More Subprime Borrowers Are Missing Loan Payments. And really what they said is right now, this is primarily impacting consumer fintech and loans, as well as some credit card issuers, those that they call subprime, which would be people that are either underbanked or have a lower credit score. There's a whole industry of consumer fintech as well as credit card issuers for that large group of consumers. And what they're saying is that 
with uh, a lot of the loans. And a lot of them have very high interest rates, especially as the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates, they are as well. So they're saying that a lot of the subprime um, borrowers are more than 60 days behind on their payments. And that's one way that you can start to see things are shifting and there's just more of an economic downturn. I do think that other types of companies will be impacted soon. Sorry, I was trying to skip through my notes. Uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve has started increasing interest rates, which could be the sharpest series of interest rate rises since the 80s, which is so exciting for those of us in the U.S. That impacts a lot of things in our everyday life, as well as if you're planning on buying a house and have debt and other things. The startup incubator, it's pretty not, I think everybody knows who Y Combinator is these days. If you're in tech, you probably do, but they're a very large startup incubator and a lot of big brands have come out of it. I've actually gotten to work with a couple of Y Combinator companies and I know that they've really benefited from the support of this incubator that they've built as well as the networking and supporting each other's businesses, etc. They sent out an email to its startup members that has gone viral that if you haven't read it, it's interesting. I think it's really good, solid advice. Giving advice, I think it was like top 10 or I don't know, but it was a list of different advice to survive or and or stay afloat the next two years. One of their lessons was the safe move is to plan for the worst, which I think we can all learn from, right? There's that phrase that's so popular for a reason, prepare for the worst or hope for the best, prepare for the worst. If I could sum up this whole episode in just a couple words, that would probably be it. But knowing me, there's no way I could do that. So I usually brevity is not exactly my strength, but I guess if it was, then I wouldn't it wouldn't be very much of a podcast. It would be boring. Fintech valuations are drastically de decreasing. To me, that's not too surprising since some of these valuations were pretty insane to begin with, and they're just not sustainable. I've talked many times on past episodes as well as on my LinkedIn that valuations, especially based on user numbers, are just overinflated by fake accounts and bots and others. And so that can be really difficult, but also it's just not sustainable. If you have a growth rate of 100% every month, or every quarter, at some point you're gonna run out of people or you're gonna run out of people that are interested in your services or it's gonna start costing even more to acquire those customers through marketing and other means. I think that bubble was bound to burst, but there's definitely been a lot of headlines on that, especially BNPL companies. I think this is really interesting because the past year it's just been BNPL, BNPL, everyone has to do buy now, pay later. And now that's not to say that it's not still gonna be popular. It's just that their valuations and predictions are definitely decreasing. Last year, Klarna was valued at 46 billion dollars. There have been some articles saying that this could they could see this year's valuation down by at least a third. Also a firm, which is I think the only core publicly traded uh, by now pay later company because Square or Block, as they're called now, purchased Afterpay. A firm is a pu the publicly traded BNPL, and it's seen their stock plummet 75 percent this year. Makes me not regret purchasing stock the day it opened like I wanted to. But it does make me have a lot of compassion for those people that work at these companies, especially because they have been hiring so many in compliance and fraud and risk. Uh, and that doesn't mean that those jobs are going to go away. In fact, I think there's going to be a big need for it. But all this uncertainty can be really scary. And my husband works in tech as well. And he somehow stayed at his company through several rounds of layoffs in 2008 to 2012. But whenever... You know, this stuff starts happening. There's definitely some nervous energy. However, I try to reassure him that he's been there so long, he'd have a decent severance and he has a really good resume working for a very well-known company. I guess I get that advice to you guys as well. Try to, sometimes it helps me to think about the worst case scenario. 
and then go, okay, it's not as bad as I thought. Now, sometimes worst case scenario is bad. So know yourself, know what works for you in this moment. But we could see this payment method of buy now, pay later be more relied upon with the recession, but the non-payment is already increasing. I've mentioned this before that at least one major BNPL, and yes, it was one of the ones I just mentioned, seems to have an issue with thinking that the majority of their losses are due to risk and credit issues. However, a lot of merchants that work with them, when they're looking at those accounts, they're like, this is 100% fraud. It's a synthetic e-commerce ID, right? So you don't need to set up a whole profile and a credit profile for synthetic ID when it's e-commerce. You just create fake accounts. And the biggest thing right now, as I switch my page in my notes, is that consumer spending is just really hard to predict. It's hard to know where they're going to choose to spend their money. And there are some technology companies that are very important and that people will prioritize to pay. There will be others that will be cut off. Uh, so it's just up to your company as well as, you know, you just understanding, right? Like, where are we in that priority list? But also knowing that some consumers may have a high priority to use your services or buy your products, but don't have it. And so that's what miss switch over to talk about. So I know all of this news is anxiety inducing, especially on a personal level. It's much harder to talk about this stuff than it is like some new fraud trend that's kind of like separate from our own lives and, and doesn't impact, you know, our family or stability, or at least doesn't risk that impact. But it'll also help increase the need for fraud prevention more than ever. I think it is definitely our duty to explain that to the business. And I will talk about that in a minute. But I was thinking about some lessons that I learned from fighting fraud in a recession the last time. For the majority of the recession last time, I was working at Bag Borrower Steel. It's very unfortunate that the word steel was in the name. I had lots of issues with it, but that is a whole other topic for another episode or never. Obviously, it, I, I believe they still have a website, but I don't know if it's still, I have no idea what the status of the company is. But in 2006, they launched and it became kind of the precursor to Rent the Runway, where people could rent high-end luxury brand handbags and accessories for a week or a month. And the stories I have are endless, but especially around 2009, when the housing market really crashed, I felt like I had a front row seat to the recession. We had a policy that if the people, especially new customers, were wanting to rent or borrow, as we said, over $20,000 worth of merchandise, they'd only be paying like maybe $2,000 for that. So it was important to know that we would get our stuff back. And if we didn't get our stuff back, would we be in line with a lot of other creditors? And it was kind of shocking how many times I would look at someone's credit report and they wanted to rent a $20,000 handbag for $1,200 a week but yet their house would be in the sixth month of foreclosure and, or they would not return their merchandise even though their credit card continually declined because their friends had seen them with that Louis Vuitton bag and they didn't want to admit that they had rented it. This is a, really an American issue, maybe a little bit in Canada. And if you know, I'm sure there are some people in other countries that are like this as well, but I feel like it's very much an American problem where people really want to have their creature comforts. They really want to show that status with luxury items etc they still want to live they still want to have they still want to live comfortably and they still want to have extras and then after bag bar steel i went on to expedia and i helped create their friendly fraud process which i'm proud to say that's still in existence i mean i know they've tweaked and improved it over the years but for some reason my brain really understands friendly fraud chargebacks and how to reduce them and how to recover from them very optimally and so that was something i was able to create for expedia and there were a lot of people that would go travel and then 
file a chargeback. And I've said this before, but I think it's important to say friendly fraud didn't really exist before this last recession 12 years ago. The term didn't exist for sure. I prefer first party fraud, but I know most everybody recognizes friendly fraud instead. There were two big reasons for that. One was something I have mentioned a few times, which is that Visa changed their rules and regulations, as did MasterCard, to no longer require that an affidavit of fraud was signed by the cardholder when they called to claim there was fraud and that they needed a charge back. And just that extra step reduced a lot of those claims and also put the onus on the consumer because they'd have to get a new card and all that other stuff. Now those requirements aren't there, so it makes it so much easier to file a fraud claim. We also know that not all the time is it the customer asking that. Sometimes the customer just called their bank to ask what they bought at that company or what the company was. And the only action the bank can do is file a chargeback. So they'll do that. And often fraud because it's the easiest one to file. So we saw that shift. And I think that along those lines, we will see first party fraud continue to grow. We've already started to see that. We're going to keep seeing that. Along those lines, I truly believe that refund fraud is the new friendly fraud. It's the new first party fraud. It's growing at a very rapid rate and really taking a lot of focus and time from fraud departments to try to get it under control. So that I believe is just going to keep skyrocketing as well as other forms of abuse like promo code abuse, referral code abuse, affiliate fraud, seller collusion, like all those things that are kind of opportunistic fraud in a way. Those are the things that I predict are going to go up. So those are the things that you should be on a lookout. I did see some issues, especially the quote unquote subprime issuers back then during the recession, try to use the chargeback system to recover funds. So one example, and it happened a couple of times, was a credit card company would issue a retrieval request for a high dollar transaction, like maybe it was $4,000 or $5,000. And the reason they'd file a retrieval request is because of the time frame. So the time frame that you can file a chargeback is usually 90 to 120 days, depending on the reason code. There's one reason code that it can be longer in some situations, but for the most part, it's 120 days. But retrieval requests can be filed for up to a year. And you know, a general use case for retrieval requests, and they're not super common, is maybe somebody's trying to do their taxes and they don't remember what they bought or they don't, they lost the receipt for that transaction. The retrieval request allows them to ask the bank, hey, what did I buy there? And then the bank asks the merchant, can you provide the order details of what was purchased, where it was shipped, et cetera? It's not a chargeback, but if you don't respond to it, it turns into an automatic chargeback and you have no recovery rights. So you have no rights to go back and represent that chargeback to try to get your money back. So it's super important if you start to see retrieval requests going up to always respond to those. It's easy, but it's a little time consuming. But the lesson there is that some issuers were doing that, hoping that the merchant would not respond to the retrieval request, and then they could file a chargeback and recover some of the funds on an account that went bad. And that happened a couple times. And then there are also issues where like a issuer would file a chargeback, a high dollar chargeback right at the end of the, right before that 120 days was to commence because they were realizing that the cardholder wasn't paying their credit card statement. So they would file a chargeback for my merchant. And I more than once said, look, my job is to make sure that the person who's using the credit card is the person who owns the credit card. I did that. Your job is to decide who you give credit to and to be repaid. It is not my company's job to pay for something that that person actually bought on your credit card because you gave them credit and they didn't pay their bill. 
That's not my problem. I don't think you're going to see that a ton, but it does happen. I will say with VOR, with the Visa Online Resolution, it is weeding some of that out, especially the past time chargeback attempts and things like that. But something to be on the lookout for that I wrote down in my notes that I didn't want to forget. Also, I've said this before, and I think my former podcast partner used to too. If you can, if you as a business can make money selling a good or a service online, then a fraudster can too. And oftentimes once they find a way to monetize items from your company, they're not going away quickly, especially if the items or services that your company provides are popular for resale, like at marketplaces. That's gift cards, that's electronics, that's designer items, that's sneakers. So I would just say guard those more popular items for resale a little bit tightly. Obviously, you can't risk a lot of false declines, but keep it in mind if an order looks suspicious and they are ordering something high risk or that's easily resellable. Just remember that because there will be more of a demand from consumers to purchase items at a much discounted rate. And they probably won't think about or care that they may have been ill-gotten goods and they may have been purchased, quote unquote, uh, using a stolen credit card. And so when that customer demand goes up, you may see more fraud targeting those items. Whether that's credit card fraud or refund fraud or other types of fraud and abuse, that's TBD. But And it often has to do with what systems and processes you have put in place now. Uh, unfortunately, not all fraud solutions are created equal. And I, for a while there, especially, I was getting good at, depending on what question a merchant asked me, I could guess what fraud provider they were using just based on the topic and the question. You know, they're not all created equal, but do the best you can to maximize its effectiveness and do the best you can. And then also consumer focused scams are going to continue to increase. I'm realizing that this episode is going to be a little longer than I anticipated, so I apologize. But if you are a merchant, here are tips to prepare. I just don't want to leave you guys on a low note. So I'm going to go through the helpful stuff. I hope it's helpful for you. Number one, ensure your processes and providers for chargeback management are as effective as possible. Recover and win as many chargebacks as you can. The chargeback process is very subjective. Whether you win or lose a chargeback on the first time or the second time, it's subjective. As hard and painful and frustrating as that is, that also provides some opportunity. I have worked with several large customers in either training them on chargebacks or creating their chargeback processes for them and their templates, et cetera. And we've been able to raise their win rates by quite a bit. There's also at least one very good chargeback solution who really provides impressive win rates back. They have much better templates than a lot of the other chargeback providers out there that just decide to throw paper at every single one. It's much better to selectively respond to the ones that you have a chance on because then your processor knows that, okay, if they're responding to this, it's worth fighting for rather than their eyes glazing over going, well, they respond to everything. So how do I know what's legit or not? Obviously, if you need to reassess your chargeback provider or others. You certainly can reach out to me or do an RFP, but I really think that now more than ever, that's important. And it's really important to report how much money you recover through the chargeback process as well up to senior leadership because it helps demonstrate value. And I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Depending on your business model, consider deploying a collections process. This is something I 
put into place both at Bag Bar Steel as well as Expedia. So for Bag Bar Steel, it was because obviously people were keeping merchandise and not giving it back. Unfortunately, there were two cases where we actually had to garnish wages and put uh, liens on mortgages because they had over $50,000 worth of merchandise and refused to return it. One of them was the person I just mentioned that was like, my friends have all seen me carry this bag, so I can't give it back to you even though I can't pay for it. And multiple times I would reach out to them and say, just give me my stuff back. I will write off every single past due bill. Just give it back so we can put it back into inventory and re-rent it. But it got to a point where we had to involve a lawyer. But prior to that, there was a lot of like collections letters and things like that. And often for that business model, it made sense because they still had our items. Collections isn't always going to make sense for companies. For Expedia, we were seeing this huge increase in friendly fraud. And often what would happen is a family would go on vacation, they would charge it all back, get their money back, and then tell at least five friends. And it was just growing so fast. So the reason we put a collection process in place was actually a deferment tactic. So it was great when we received money back, but it was primarily the purpose was, hey, this impacted us. We know you did this don't do it again. And if you do it again, you're going to have your account canceled. Like I said, it really depends on your business model. I have done this with some clients, but other clients have said it's not even worth it. There's at least one really good collection agency out there that is automated and actually has really high ratings from the customers, which I think is crazy, but also awesome because you know, who knows? They may come back and want to be a customer another time when they're more financially solvent. Review payment processing fees and other contracts based on volume. If your transaction volume has increased since the last contract, try to renegotiate. One of my first clients I had when I started my consultancy, they brought me on for chargebacks. But when I was looking at their merchant statement, I noticed that they were paying like three times as much as one of their competitors was. Um, and I happened to know that because their competitor had told me and I didn't tell them, hey, you're paying more than this other guy over here. But I just said, you know, I think there's a lot of room for improvement. So even though they were on their existing contract with their same processor, when they went to their processor and said, hey, these look really large, high fees compared to, you know, our volume and all of that, we need to get them down. And if we can't, then we're going to need to go somewhere else. And I think we got pricing from one other competitor and then showed that to the current processor. And this merchant was so big that processor didn't want to lose them. So they saved like over $4 million a year in perpetuity. Now, hindsight's always twenty twenty. I wish that I said, hey, I'll just work for a small percentage of what I save you. But as much as that kind of sounds like it makes sense, there's a lot of companies that don't ever want to do that, especially with me, because <laughs> I think I have a reputation for saving a lot of money, which is a great reputation to have. But it's also like, well, I guess I just need to charge by the project. I think it's important to increase communications and education within your company on the importance of fraud prevention. Help them understand that it's not just sales prevention. It's really revenue retention. And revenue retention is more important than ever during a recession. And sometimes revenue recovery with chargebacks and collect. Put together reporting. Tell the story. Explain it. You can share the trends, right? Hey, we're starting to see our first party fraud go up and here's what it looks like. I think it's really important to demonstrate the value of fraud because especially if there are going to be layoffs, it's critical for your company, not just for you to have you in place 
manning the ship. I have seen too many companies, especially back then when the recession was so many layoffs, where they laid off too many people and they just laid off fraud people because they thought we don't want our sales to be cut. So we'll just we'll deal with the fraud later. I don't care. We just need top line revenue. And that has been happening with a couple companies lately that are a little risky, especially depending on where they're at in their life cycle with VC funding. Some of them are like, hey, we just need as much top line revenue as possible. We'll deal with chargebacks later. That's terrifying. And a lot of times you're losing so much more money than you would have if you had preventions in place and were doing it right. But remember that all of this creates fear for everyone, including senior leaderships. As you are explaining what you do and how you're helping them, that will help reaffirm your value to the company. Take initiative to save money and expenses. Like when, if you're able to negotiate your contracts, if you're able to optimize your chargebacks and increase your win rate, depending on your business model and your payment processor. Your win rate should be around 40 to 60%. That's not on first time chargebacks that the way you calculate that is looking at how many chargebacks did you get that never turned into second times where they debited the money again. That's you should not just be looking at first time win rates because that only means that your processor said yes. And then a lot of times the issuer says no and it comes back. And I guess one other note on the collections piece, you actually can send customers to collections if they issued a chargeback and you can prove for sure that they're the one that made the purchase. Obviously, those are business decisions. Not all businesses want to send out a collections notice and, and risk having it be on Twitter. And it doesn't make sense for all businesses either. So I'm just that caveat for sure. It's really important to try to reduce your declines as much as possible. I know a couple of merchant companies that have started contracts. One of them calls it trash to treasure model, where they outsource any transaction that they were considering to decline to a third party that offers a chargeback guarantee. And some of them are very good as far as like, they may approve 60 to 70% of what you would have declined. And then if a defraud chargeback comes, they pay you back for it. So that's one way to increase sales and decrease declines and make sure you're tracking all of that. If you make one of those changes, track that and share with the rest of the company, hey, by making this change, by optimizing this process, we have saved the company X or we have increased sales by Y. That is very helpful for the company to understand. There's just so much visibility that we have when we're in fraud at the merchant level that I think you're doing a deserted service if you're not communicating that out to the business. So other areas of new opportunity, there was direct-to-consumer physical goods company at the height of the pandemic that was struggling a lot at first. And their fraud manager went to them and said, hey, I've identified this group of sales that it would have brought us you know, this much money last month. But we stopped it because we've been told uh, we don't want resellers because we have a brand name and people will buy it and then resell it in other countries for hire unlicensed. They're not approved to do that by the company. And she's just the fraud manager presented it and said, we can change this. It's up to you. It does mean more resellers, but this is an opportunity of X million dollars more a month. That showed initiative. That's just there's other ways that you can do that. However, that works for your company. When I was at Bagbar Steel, there was a lot of concern about orders that we were canceling. You know, there was a lot of concern from up high and a lot of it came from fear of, oh my gosh, you know, you guys are canceling too much and this is impacting us and you need to stop and not have so much autonomy. And so I made a compromise and I had actually helped the devs create our own system because we had such a unique business model. And so we implemented into that system an opportunity to accept and watch. To my team, I called that the CYA button, the cover your ass button. 
And basically what that was is it was whenever there was an order that you were like, oh, I don't know, and that gut feeling and you could go either way. Instead of defaulting to cancel it, we defaulted to approve it. And then they'd, they'd approve it with the accept and watch button. So that way, at the end of the month, I would pull a report. But it was usually like the 60 days after each transaction, I would pull a report on 60 days or over. And then I would go back then it was manual. I'm sure now you could do this very automated. Look and see how many of them turned into chargebacks. And I was very humbled that at least 50% never turned into chargebacks. And so those were extra sales we were able to gain and tell the business that, hey, by put working with development to implement, this was a compromise because I'm not just going to free for all. But this way I can say these are things that we would have canceled, but they actually were approved. And so this has been helpful. So those are you know some of my uh, suggestions. Creating a task force or a fraud squad to increase internal collaboration can also be very helpful, especially if your company has refund fraud. You have to be talking with customer service in the warehouse right now because those are the two areas of compromise for refund fraud that are being targeted. And I just, like I said, I cannot stress enough how much this is going to explode as if it hasn't already. Um, if no one in the company knows or understands your value, then that's a problem for your team and for your company. So the other thing I would say is oftentimes during these types of economic downturns, people in senior leadership will have some crazy ideas of how to increase revenue. And you'll probably want to say no a lot. I said no too many times. And then when I really needed to say no, it, it wasn't taken as seriously for some of these crazy ideas, but they might have new business models. They may want to put something on sale that never has been before. They may want to do something kind of risky. Try your best to default to yes or yes and. Maybe even yes, but. Try to find a compromise. That new business model could create this kind of risk, but what if we added an extra verification layer? What if we were able to verify identity? Would that help us feel better about X? The one thing that I really said no to was when my CMO at the time got this great idea to basically sell our customers' credit card numbers to a magazine company, and it was going to be through an unsecured channel and just send it over. And I was like, no, 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 no. And I think that was right before the legislation came in that you couldn't do that anyway, but he didn't even want to do a checkbox. He was just going to put it like buried in the terms of service that every time you rented something, you'd then get signed up for some magazine that you didn't want. And I rose hell. <laughs> so like I said, you know, there's going to be times when you just absolutely have to say no, but try to reserve those no's for those type of extremes, not all the little stuff, because unfortunately, if you're not seen like a team player or that you care about the company and you're doing whatever you can, then that's going to that could put you in a vulnerable position when they're considering who stays and who goes if that comes to it for your company. OK, my last page, guys. So solution providers, I know you're stressed, too. And depending on where your company is on funding stages, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I just have empathy for everyone. There's uncertainty for me as well. So, I mean, I'm in it with you guys. But my words to you is that that shouldn't push you into being aggressive. That will only create bigger problems long term. Try to be understanding. Your prospects are dealing with uncertainty too. They're stressed out. Ask how you can help or support them. Maybe give them a little bit more space. Don't reach out as much. I know that there's a lot of frustration on merchants ghosting, and I'm using quotation marks, but you can't see me, ghosting salespeople. A lot of that's because they are so busy right now. Like I said in the episode about fraud is in a state of emergency, the other thing about a recession is that oftentimes it creates a lot more work for the fraud and trust and safety teams, but we aren't able to get resources because there are hiring freezes. So try to have some understanding and some empathy. Ask how you can help. 
offer to make introductions to current clients or prospects that have shared issues. If you know one company you know of is having a specific issue that your prospect is offered, introduce them. I've been hosting a couple of private invite-only roundtables with select merchants on behalf of a couple of solution providers. And that's been a great opportunity to provide value to those merchants. And it's also helped the solution provider really understand some of the core issues that these companies are having. What I would say too is help them demonstrate ROI and the value of your product. If there isn't a big and a huge ROI and value of your product to a specific prospect, move on. You want to be able to make the biggest difference and find those companies that need you versus trying to convince a company that doesn't that they do. That's just gonna waste your time and energy and could also burn some bridges. But help try to create, you know, ROI. Hey, we crunched the numbers. And if you were to implement, this is how much you would save. And I know that's hard to do all the time, especially like I've been trying to do that with refund fraud because I'm trying to quantify it. I'm in the beginning stages of creating a product with a really great fraud technology company that is in the space as a standalone refund fraud prevention product. And it's really hard to quantify that as well. So I get it. But do your best there. Think about how you can stand out and provide additional value and information to your prospects. How can you help them do their job better? That's what's going to build a stronger relationship. That's what's going to help them become a champion of your product. If it really will provide value, then they'll be able to communicate that value up words to their leadership team. And also understand that a lot of companies are on freezes for technology and things like that. So try to think outside of the box, try to figure out how you can help them without a lot of engineering resources. Maybe it is through Spectrus. Maybe it's looking at different solutions that you can partner up with to become better. Okay. I think that was actually my list. And then the last thing I just want to share is, and this is just kind of my own advice, but these are things that I think that we should all do to prepare, whether you're a solution provider or a merchant. I titled it self-preservation slash career impacts. You can be stressed out or you can take action. I know for a fact that fear makes people do crazy things. And like I said, for me, it helps to think about the worst case scenario. For other people, it helps to take action and feel like, okay, if I were to be laid off, these are the steps I'm going to take. The easiest thing you can do is to start utilizing LinkedIn a little bit more and build your network. Quality over quantity, right? Reach out to people. Hey, how's it going? But not not creepily, not for sales. And do respect and understand that everyone's LinkedIn inbox gets full very fast, especially if you're a big name merchant. You know, work on connection. It's so important to have a network before you need it. There was someone I met last year who I was really impressed by. I sat across from them at a vendor dinner and we had a great conversation. I knew somebody in his city that also did something similar and I was already texting them and I was like, oh my gosh, you guys have to meet. I introduced them via LinkedIn. I reached out to this guy via LinkedIn about something. I never heard from him for six months. And then in March, I get a message in LinkedIn that he's been laid off. And, you know, do I know anything for him? And I'm like, that was, you should have reached out and kept that connection going. That doesn't mean I didn't help him. I actually referred him to a marketplace last week. I think he's great. It's a good example that you need to start building your network before you need it. That way you're helping people. And once, you know, once you need some help, they're all going to want to help you too. I think that no one should be ashamed or embarrassed about posting on LinkedIn that they are, they were recently laid off or they're looking for a job. People want to help people. That's human nature. Be kind to others, even vendors. Um, and this is for merchants specifically. You never know when you might need a reference or a job or 
this industry changes so much that people move around. And so you never know, right? Like maybe they're at a company that you don't really need anything from now, but they might be at a, you know, another company that's very helpful in the near future. I mean, that's always my advice is to be kind to people and provide impact and value. But I think especially now, when we're focusing on those things, when we're focusing on what we're grateful for, what we do have, how we can help ourselves and build community, that's less time we're focused on being stressed and uncertainty. And honestly, freaking out and stressing and losing sleep over it is not productive. Meeting people, connecting with people, attending webinars and reaching out to the speaker, whatever that is, whatever your comfort level is, start posting articles that you find interesting or podcast episodes you find interesting. I don't know, just a thought. I mean, I don't have any specific podcasts in mind, but phrenology, I'm teasing you guys. Um, You guys are so supportive. It's not, I appreciate it. But yeah, if you can speak at events, whether it's a webinar or something like that, if uh, you're a merchant, you are welcome on phrenology. Because of sponsorships, we don't do vendor interviews uh, except for, you know, with sponsors. But merchants are always welcome to come talk and highlight. And almost every person that I've had on this podcast has received some new opportunities. I absolutely adore using this platform for that purpose. Uh, I know that not all companies allow you to speak, but do what you can, right? Maybe you can write a blog post. Maybe you can join a committee with the MRC and, and meet people that way. Maybe you can join their community calls if you're members. Um, and then help your team become good at networking too. This is not a skill that comes naturally to everyone. So I think it's really helpful leadership to just be like, hey, we're going to learn LinkedIn today. There's some really great people that provide LinkedIn training for relatively inexpensive. It's something that I've just stumbled upon over the years. I've probably picked up a few tips and tricks here and there. But for the most part, there are some good experts out there. Uh, if you need a recommendation, let me know. Those are really some things I think that maybe will be more productive than just stressing out and freaking out about what will happen if you lose your job. And ultimately, recessions provide opportunity. Oh, I forgot I have one last page. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm sorry. I didn't realize how long this is. But uncertainty is challenging, but it can also bring new opportunities. Think of the massive shifts in technology in the past. There's a lot of companies that didn't exist before the last recession that came out of it. I believe Uber's one of them and so many others. So this will provide opportunity eventually. And a lot of the most successful companies were born out of the last recession. It's a pressure test. So hopefully you're working for a company that will withstand it, but also know that there will continue to be opportunities as the market grows and shifts and changes. And our industry isn't going anywhere. We will be needed more than ever. Not all companies will understand or appreciate that, but it's our job to communicate the importance of protecting your company, whether it's from hostile fraud. I think I was going to say fossil fraud, but that doesn't make sense. From hostile fraud, like third party fraud to first party fraud, quote in parentheses, friendly fraud, refund fraud and other abuses. It's your company's front line. It is your job to protect it, but I think it's also your job to provide value and try to provide that value before it's asked for. I think that's advice that I'm grateful that I got when I was in this industry at that time. And I hope that you'll find it useful as well. This episode was a little bit longer than our typical Thursday episodes. I ram packed it and spent a lot more time on it than I meant to. But I think it's an important topic. I hope it gave you some ideas. I'd love to hear about it. If anything in this episode sparked an idea or inspired you to do something that really just helps validate that I'm on the right track. And I am always open to topic ideas for the future. This one definitely came out of several conversations. So as I see those trends, that's how I'll select the topics. Well, with that, I hope you have a great rest of the week and I will talk to you next week. 
thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.